Twitter has added end-to-end encrypted DMs, kind of, we'll talk about the details, Um, a serious leak of private keys for Intel firmware, which is pretty gnarly. Your phone may come pre-installed with malware and a lot more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 133, where we're dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. I am Henry from TechLore. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Promo segment is going to be the same. Uh, we really can't do this without our supporters. So we actually have like really no business model for our surveillance report outside of like YouTube ads, which make us like no money. Um, and then also like our patrons. So we really couldn't do this without our patrons. If you want to support this podcast and uh, help us grow this podcast, check out our Patreon down below. There's also some fun perks down there. And you can join the Q&A, which actually didn't get any questions this week. So if you have any questions for us, join our Patreon. If you don't like Patreon, we also have LibraPay, and we also support Monero as well if you want to directly contribute to what we're doing in the most private way possible. We do see your Monero donations. Uh, We've been getting a few the last few weeks, which are awesome, so thank you all for doing that. Let's go to the highlight story. So Twitter has rolled out encrypted DMs, but only for paying accounts. Now, like everything here, we have our own thoughts on what's going on, but we're going to just try to cover the news, and then we might add our own commentary and analysis. But the news is um, end-to-end encrypted DMs are available to paid users on Twitter with other paid users. So both people have to be paid users to use this. Some experts are already kind of criticizing this implementation as poor, uh, which we'll talk about why that is soon. But at this time, feel free to use the feature if you're a paying user, as it's probably still an improvement uh, for your privacy and security, but you really shouldn't trust it with anything sensitive, and you should probably pick a better app. The reason we say that is because uh, Twitter DMs right now have no perfect forward secrecy, which is one of the things that makes Signal so special. There's no man-in-the-middle protection, so theoretically, like, a Twitter employee can be impersonating the person you're communicating with, and things like Signal do not have that problem. Um, Twitter also notes that while messages and reactions to encrypted DMs are encrypted, metadata, like recipient creation time, are not, and neither is any linked content. So there's actually some metadata concerns as well, which things like Signal don't have. And also, it doesn't even allow for group messaging or photos or videos. So you're even limited on the feature basis right now. This feels, to me, very half-baked. So I think it's good they're rolling out some form of encryption, but um, this is extremely half-baked. And I don't consider this really anything that they should have probably released in its current state. But I don't know if you have any thoughts here. No, honestly, I think I'm really in the same boat as you. I do think it's better than nothing. and I think it's pretty cool. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of concerns here. I think the biggest thing that bugs me is that it's not available for unpaid users, even if a paid user initiates a conversation. Like I understand he's trying to make money, which is why this is probably a paid feature. But even like, you know, let's say I'm paid and somebody else is not paid and I want to say something sensitive to them. Tough. You know, that that kind of sucks. There's some issues to fix for now. Probably stick to something a little more trusted, whether that's Signal. Some people would prefer to trust Session or Threema or something else. But yeah, maybe... Maybe stick to one of those for now until this is a little more mature. With that, we'll go ahead and launch into our data breaches, and we had quite a few this week. We'll start off with NextGen Healthcare, who says that attackers access personal data of more than 1 million patients. NextGen is a U.S. provider of electronic health record software. They filed a data breach notification with the Maine Attorney General and confirmed that the data of 1.05 million patients, including approximately 4,000 Maine residents, was accessed. They say that the data included names, dates of birth, addresses, and social security numbers. The records themselves do not appear to be impacted, so that's good. And the article 
article notes that NextGen was hit by the Alpha Ransomware group back in January. They didn't really say if this was related or not. And it's also unclear if this was related to the Fortra Go Anywhere attacks. North Korean hackers have breached a major hospital in Seoul to steal data. The police said the incident resulted in data exposure for 831,000 individuals, most of whom were patients. Also, 17,000 of the impacted people are current and former employees. It's unclear what information was compromised, so we might get updates to this. Stay subscribed. Next comes from Brightly, who warns of a SchoolDude data breach exposing credentials. SchoolDude is a cloud-based platform for managing work orders used by over 7,000 colleges, universities, and K-12 schools from districts of up to 600,000 students. The company's other software-as-a-solution services are being used by more than 12,000 organizations worldwide, most from the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and Australia. The breach data includes names, email addresses, account passwords, phone numbers if it was added to the account, and school district names. Brightly has reset all user passwords, and the notification filing with the Maine Attorney General says the breach has impacted a whopping 2.9 million customers and users. The first thing that jumps out at me here is they said phone numbers if added to the account. So personally, I always recommend you don't add information to your account unless you absolutely have to. And again, I just always have to say, here we are, breaching children's information and then complaining about encryption being the problem. Toyota. The car company, car location data of 2 million customers has been exposed for 10 years. So Toyota disclosed a data breach on its cloud environment that exposed the car location information of over 2 million customers for 10 years. They said the data breach resulted from a database misconfiguration that allowed anyone to access its contents without a password. The incident exposed the information of customers who use the company's T-Connect, G-Link, G-Link Lite, or G-Book services between 2012 and 2023. Um, April of 2023, if you... T-Connect is Toyota's in-car smart service for voice assistance, customer service support, car status and management, and on-road emergency help. The information exposed in the database includes the in-vehicle GPS navigation terminal ID number, the chassis number, and vehicle location information with time data. So, another car problem here. Uh, for the record, most car companies are probably collecting this data uh, nowadays, so I don't think this is Toyota exclusive to collect location information, but this is an actual breach of that information, which is not fantastic. Our next story comes from Discord, who discloses a data breach after a support agent got hacked. So technically, this wasn't Discord. This was their third-party support agent. Discord is notifying users after the account of a third-party support agent was compromised. The security breach was exp uh, exposed to the agent's support ticket queue, which contained user email addresses, messages exchanged with Discord support, and any attachments sent as part of the tickets. Discord says it immediately addressed the breach support account by disabling it once the incident was discovered. The article says if you're a Discord user... It's very unlikely that this probably affected you because this was a specific agent and it wasn't the whole company. But, you know, as always, you should be on guard for phishing attacks and spam and stuff like that. Food distribution giant Cisco warns of a data breach after cyber attack. The company believes the employee's data stolen from its systems during the breach is a combination of personal information for payroll, name, social security number, account numbers, and similar information. So if you're an employee for Cisco, uh, keep an eye out and I assume that they were notified. Next comes from cybersecurity firm Dragos, who discloses an incident and extortion attempt. So Drago states that threat actors did not breach its network or cybersecurity platform, but they did access the company's SharePoint cloud service and contract management system. They were able to download general use data, that's quote unquote general use data, and access 25 Intel reports that were usually only available to customers. During the 16 hours they had access to the compromised account, the threat actors also failed to access multiple other systems like messaging, IT help desk, financial uh, request for proposal, so on and so forth. 
After failing to breach the company's internal network, they sent an extortion email to Drago's executives 11 hours into the attack. The message was read five hours later because it was sent outside of business hours. Five minutes after reading the message, Drago's disabled the compromised account, revoked all active sessions, and blocked the cyber criminal's infrastructure from accessing company resources. They suspect the primary objective was to launch ransomware, but it sounds like they were doing things pretty well. It sounds like whoever this employee was uh, did not have just like unfettered access to the system. So the attackers were only able to do so much. They were still able to, again, steal some information that probably wasn't great, but it doesn't sound like it was anything super sensitive. Could have been a lot worse, but still not great. So hackers stole passwords of WorldCoin orb operators. Remember WorldCoin? I don't, but it's pretty much a crypto bro idea where you scan your retinas in exchange for some coin nobody's heard of or using. And uh, they got hacked. The operators have access to an online portal and an app where they can track information such as earnings, uptime, signups, operator ratings, and other metrics. TechCrunch has learned that several WorldCoin operators had their personal devices compromised by password-stealing malware, such as the Redline Information Stealer, to steal all credentials saved in their browser, including login details for the operator app. Orb dashboards contain data, including onboarding and training documents, the support requests filed by other Orb operators, uh, though it's unclear exactly to what extent user data is accessible by the operator. Past reporting found that information collected by operators includes emails, phone numbers, and scans of national ID cards in some regions. And our final data breach comes from Western Digital. This is just a quick update. Western Digital has confirmed that attackers stole customer data back in March. They have taken their store offline and sent customers data breach notifications. Information included customer names, billing and shipping addresses, email addresses, telephone numbers, hashed passwords, and partial credit card numbers. They also state that the database itself was encrypted, so that should slow attackers down a little bit. The company expects to restore access May 15th, so Monday. Uh, They're expecting to have the store back up Monday if you want to buy any Western Digital products. And I know we harp on this stuff a lot and it's not available everywhere. But for the record, the thing that jumps out to me here, billing and shipping address, PO box, email address, simple login, telephone number, my pseudo hushed, Google voice, whatever credit card numbers, you know, privacy.com or my pseudo, or there's, there's starting to get more options out there for credit card numbers. So yeah, all of this was information that for most people could have been obfuscated in a non-threatening way. Not for everybody. Again, I realize there's some privilege there, but Just keep that stuff in mind. All right, and now the company news. So an ex-ByteDance executive claims that the CCP maintained access to U.S. data. So ByteDance is the company behind TikTok. The Chinese Communist Party maintained supreme access to data belonging to TikTok, including data stored in the U.S., a former top executive claimed. Yu is his name, and he says that he served as head of engineering for ByteDance's U.S. offices, and he alleged that inside the Beijing-based company, the CCP had special office or unit, which sometimes referred to as the committee. The committee didn't work for ByteDance, but played a significant role in part by guiding how the company advanced core communist values. The lawsuit claims and the CCP could also access U.S. user data via a backdoor channel in the code. This is unfolding. Uh, There's really not much more information right now, but stay subscribed and I'm sure we're going to have more info. This article says Bluetooth tags for Android's 3 billion strong tracking network are here. The title really says it all. So late last year, I'm pretty sure we covered this. Late last year, uh, Android announced that they were going to kind of create their own version of the Find My Network. And originally, this was just for phones. You know, if you lose your phone, you can figure out where it is using, it's exactly like Apple. It's exactly the same. You can track down your phone. It looks like they're now going to the next step, which is they're going to launch their own version of AirTags. That's really kind of it. When I read the article, nothing really jumped out at me as like, oh, this is different. Like, here's what makes it different. Or here's, you know, it's just AirTags. Yeah, it's just kind of worth being aware of it because we've seen all the privacy concerns that 
came with hair tags. Uh, hopefully, Google or whoever is behind this has learned at least some lessons from the air tags and we'll start off on a little better footing we'll just have to wait and see microsoft issues an optional fix for secure boot zero day used by malware the security updates released today by redmond contain a windows boot manager fix they are disabled by default and will not remove the attack vector exploited in the black lotus attacks the attack is used by threat actors primarily as a persistence and defense evasion mechanism. Successful exploitation relies on the attacker having physical access or local administrative privileges on the targeted device. Uh, we couldn't find any info on why this is an optional update, so definitely proceed with caution, but the fix will be enabled by default next year, and until then, it requires local access anyways, so it kind of assumes an already compromised device. If you enable this fix, it is permanent. Like apparently even reinstalling Windows will not undo it. Our next story also comes from Windows and it's super quick. It says first Rust code shows up in Windows 11 kernel. So last week we talked about how Windows is going to start, or uh, Microsoft is going to start updating some of their core Windows code to use Rust, which is a memory safe programming language. Basically, it prevents you from writing code that is known to have vulnerabilities in it. It has started rolling out into the Insider program on Windows 11. And the Insider program is basically kind of like early access slash beta testing. So if you're using the Windows Insider program, you should have access to this. If you're not, but you're using Windows, it'll probably come soon. And if you're not using Windows, it doesn't concern you. And the last company news for the week, GitHub now auto blocks token and API key leaks for all repos. So this announcement comes after the company introduced push notifications in beta more than a year ago. This feature proactively prevents leaks by scanning for secrets before Git push operations are accepted, and it works with 69 token types, including API keys, private keys, secret keys, authentication tokens, access tokens, management certificates, credentials, and a lot more, detectable with a low false positive detection rate. Since this is beta, software developers who enabled it successfully averted around 17,000 accidental exposures of sensitive information, saving more than 95,000 hours that would have been spent revoking, rotating, and remediating compromised secrets, according to GitHub. While before today, this feature could only be enabled for a private repo by organizations with a GitHub Advanced Security License, GitHub has now also made it generally available on all public repos. So... Cool stuff. I don't really have any complaints with this. With that, we'll move into research. Uh, this one kind of made the headlines. It was kind of a big deal. The headline says, Intel OEM private key leak, a blow to secure boot security. In April, MSI fell victim to a cyber attack uh, per perpetrated by the ransomware group Money Message, who successfully infiltrated MSI's internal systems and exfiltrated a staggering 1.5 terabytes of data, predominantly source code. Money Message demanded a $4 million ransom from MSI, and MSI seemingly has not paid, as some of the stolen data has already surfaced online. Now, unfortunately, it has been confirmed that the private key provided by Intel to manufacturers has been leaked. So MSI's private key from Intel to sign like all their firmware updates and stuff has now been leaked. This particularly pertains to the Intel boot card digital signatures, a processor feature designed to ensure that computers only run verified programs before booting. In essence, this concerns UEFI Secure Boot, a mechanism that validates programs prior to operating system startup to prevent malware from running. The leaked private keys affect Intel's 11th, 12th, and 13th gen processors and were distributed to various OEMs, including Intel itself, Lenovo, and Supermicro. So this isn't just an MSI problem. According to security researcher firm Binarly, the leaked Intel boot guard uh, keys impact at least 166 MSI products with the extent of the damage to other products currently unknown. We're not going to dig into it, but I did tack on a second article about this. The headline, I think, is a, a little sensational, maybe. But basically, the premise of that article is they talk about how these keys really can't be changed. They're kind of hard-coded into 
the hardware. So I mean, like obviously Intel can issue new keys and moving forward, these manufacturers can use the new keys and replace them. But for existing devices, this is really, really bad news because those keys are stuck and they can't be revoked and changed. This, this kind of sucks. If you're uh, an MSI user or any of these other brands, definitely keep an eye on this. And if we hear anything, we'll try to keep you updated. But this is really unfortunate. And up next, this is a pretty big story, but millions of mobile phones come pre-infected with malware, says researchers. So miscreants have infected millions of Android devices worldwide with malicious firmware before the devices are even shipped from their factories. Um, this hardware is mainly just like cheapo Android mobile devices, like smartwatches, TVs, and other things. The gadgets have their manufacturing outsourced to an original equipment manufacturer or an OEM. That outsourcing makes it possible for someone in the manufacturing pipeline, such as a firmware supplier, to infect products with malicious code as they ship out. The insertion of malware began as the price of mobile phone firmware dropped. Competition between firmware distributors became so furious that eventually the providers could not charge money for their product. So because of the situation, firmware started to come with an undesirable feature, which is silent plugins. The team uh, who wrote this article analyzed dozens of firmware images looking for malicious software. They found over 80 different plugins, although many of those were not widely distributed. The plugins that were the most impactful were those that had a business model built around them, were sold on the underground, and marketed in the open on places like Facebook, blogs, and YouTube. The objective of the malware is to steal information or make money from information collected or delivered. The malware turns the devices into proxies, which are used to steal and sell SMS messages, take over social media and online messaging accounts, and used as monetization opportunities via adverts and click fraud. One type of plugin, proxy plugins, allows the criminal to rent out devices for up to around five minutes at a time. For example, those renting the control of the device could acquire data on keystrokes, geographical location, IP address, and more. The user of the proxy will be able to use someone else's phone for a period of 1,200 seconds as an exit node. He also said the team found a Facebook cookie plugin that was used to harvest activity from the Facebook app. Through telemetry data, the researchers estimated that at least millions of infected devices exist globally, but are centralized in Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe. This speaks more to like making sure you're getting trusted devices from, I guess, trusted companies, which I know I'm going to say like Apple and Google, which many of you are going to go, oh my god, but they're probably not going to be baking in third-party spy software into their devices, most likely. So this is more of like a budget issue where if you're buying like a $15 phone online, um, that is a much larger risk for you. With that, I think it's time that we announce our new sponsor. It's our own custom secure phone made in the Philippines. I'm not a cryptographer or a programmer, so I don't know anything about it, but they're paying us a lot of money. Freedom phone. We have some good news on the research front. There is a new ransomware decryptor that can recover data from partially encrypted files. They have called this White Phoenix, and it was created by a company called CyberArk. Um, the article didn't really specify who they were, but clearly there's some kind of cybersecurity research firm. Apparently, according to the article, most ransomware actually only partially encrypts files instead of fully encrypting them. And I guess this has a, the reason they do that is because if the company pays the ransom, this ensures that files have a better success rate for de-encryption uh, because we've covered that before. Sometimes companies will pay the ransom and the decryptor just doesn't work or it's so painfully slow that it's useless anyways. Uh, I guess partially encrypting is supposed to ensure that decryption can still work uh, so that customers are more likely to pay the ransom or victims, I should say, are more likely to pay the ransom, but they're still encrypted enough that they're basically unusable by the victim until they pay the ransom. Researchers were looking into this and the article goes into not like excruciating detail, but it goes into further detail about how 
They noticed, I think it said like PDFs apparently never get encrypted, which was kind of weird. And then from there, somehow they were able to like reverse engineer from there. And for the record, that's a gross oversimplification. But, you know, they were basically able to say like, oh, I bet we can kind of like reverse engineer the original file from this encryption. So it works on several prominent ransomware strains like Black Cat slash Alpha, Play, and Darkbit. However, researchers note that this is not a 100% guarantee to work, and especially on unsupported strains that they have not tested. So it's kind of out there as like a as-is slash use at your own risk. And of course, the best defense is to keep good backups, test your backups, and try not to fall victim to ransomware in the first place, which, you know, sometimes it is through like a zero day or something like that. More often than not, it's through somebody clicking some phishing stuff or, you know, people not patching their systems. I really like this story because it speaks to something that we talk about a lot, which people don't seem to take as seriously as we do, but um, it's called testing a new encrypted messaging app's extraordinary claims. The app landed on the radar in a group chat a while back. So there's an app that we have actually stumbled on before and we were critical of it because it's, you know, they make these absurd claims and it's all proprietary, which by the way, like I instant red flag for anything that says like, oh, we have proprietary technology. That's not a good thing. You know, like we want open source technology, but it's another run of the mill private messenger app that's proprietary and claims to be the most private and secure app out there. Um, But the researcher reverse engineered the app and found that one, it was not even using its own encryption. It was using a third party SDK. Two, the SDK was weak and poorly implements encryption. And three, the app was implementing the SDK incorrectly, which makes it even worse. Basically, the more you read in this article, the worse it gets up to the point where the researcher was confident he could have accessed message content, but stopped to respect people's privacy. You should give it a read and remember to be wary of any new messengers and stop jumping on every new bandwagon just because a messenger is almost perfect, but doesn't do X. Like we see this a lot, like Signal requires a phone number. Here's my new proprietary Signal alternative that's better than Signal in every way, and it doesn't require a phone number. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't have issues with Signal. It's got problems. We say that we complain about Signal when they do crappy stuff as well. But there's a reason why it's so trusted, and we like to stick with trusted solutions back here that have a lot of time on their hands and are open source and have been able to be vetted by the community for years on end. Um, You should always treat any new service with a bit of suspicion. And our last research story is uh, one of those like polls, statistics kind of things. It says Safari retakes second place in global browser market share, but Edge is close behind. Says last year, Microsoft Edge surpassed Safari as the second most popular desktop browser. Now new data shows that Apple's browser has finally regained second place. However, it will have to make an effort to retain this position as Microsoft Edge is literally on its back. So Chrome is at 66.13%. Safari is at 11.87%. Edge is at a flat 11. Firefox is way down there at 5.65 and Opera is 3.09. And Internet Explorer is at a whopping 0.55%. I have questions for those people. The article says it's also interesting to note that after Firefox almost surpassed Safari in February of 2022, the browser is still losing its base to Edge and Safari. And the article says the Edge has grown since last year and Chrome is down slightly. Last year it was at 66.64. Just interesting stuff worth knowing to see where we are right now. All right, and now we're going to go into the politics. So the data broker that targeted abortion clinics landed a U.S. military contract. So the data broker made famous for selling location data related to abortion clinic visits has signed a contract with the U.S. Air Force and plans to provide information about sensitive places and adversary state-owned enterprises around the world. The company Safegraph told the military that its data can be used for analyzing human activity for landing zone selection, as well as to identify hospitals, schools, and houses of worship to help avoid collateral damage. $75,000 phase one contract 
SafeGraph told officials that it had identified several potential customers and planned to adapt its products for larger military partnerships later this year. Based on this marketing material, SafeGraph is really emphasizing the whole we can provide a list of places not to hit thing, but obviously that can be easily subverted and it could also be downplaying other sensitive data we already know SafeGraph is capable of collecting. The AFWERX contract is the first publicly reported relationship between SafeGraph and the U.S. military, but the company has a history of working with other government agencies. In 2018, it sold two years of raw data to the Illinois Department of Transportation. In the first months of COVID-19, it inked a $420,000 deal with the Centers for Disease Control. Meanwhile, uh, Veriset gave raw individual data about millions of people to the Washington, D.C. Department of Health and other agencies around the world. And in 2020 and 2021, Santa Clara County used SafeGraph data to monitor attendance at a local church as part of a broader effort to enforce COVID restrictions. Materials shared with the Air Force mentioned relationships with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Federal Reserve Bank, and the Los Angeles County, New York City, and New Jersey governments. So this is pretty unhinged, honestly. Like, this is crazy. Like, I, I just can't, like, wrap my mind around how this type of business is allowed to exist. So we'll move on to a quick signal boost. This comes from the EFF. The headline says, Dangerous Earn It Bill advances out of committee, but several senators offer objections. The Earn It Act was basically a, an encryption backdoor. Um, I read it back when it was very first introduced and it was only 11 pages and I forget what it was, but I remember it was on the last page. It was like, Oh yeah, no, that's, that's a red flag. Um, and then when I circled back around to read it again, after it passed through Congress, the first time it had ballooned to a whopping 257 pages. And unfortunately I have a day job and better things to do with my life. So I didn't read that one, but anyways, yeah, it's basically an encryption backdoor. They're going to tell you it's not, they're going to try to dress it up. They're lying. It's died twice already, it's back for the third time, but now it is advanced out of committee, which means they could vote on it at any given point. This is just our reminder to listeners, uh, if you're a US citizen, call your politicians, start telling them like, hey, I want you to vote against this thing, I feel very strongly about it, express your disagreement with this bill. Next story, privacy or safety, US brings surveillance city to the suburbs. This is a write-up about FUSIS, I don't know, but another one. it's another one of those surveillance as a service companies who's signing deals with police and other government organizations to get access to private citizen cameras like their ring doorbells. Just sharing as yet another one of those worth a read and something to share with your friends and family kind of things, especially those that have things like the Amazon rings and they see no problem with that because even though they're enabling a, an entire industry of surveillance. but City Council accuses New York City privacy chief over, uh, over agency biometric use. So I'm just going to quote some bits from the article here. During the hearing on May 3rd, NYC council members asked the NYC chief privacy officer, Michael Fitzpatrick, about the city and its agency's practices of engaging with private entities, which are not subject to the same regulations as city agencies, to obtain data. Quick pause. We literally just talked about that with SafeGraph. The government has this really nice, very popular habit of saying, well, we're not legally allowed to obtain this data directly, but there's nothing to stop us from buying it from a third-party company who is not regulated. Fitzpatrick testified that he did not know of any city uh, agencies that purchased information from private entities. The council also asked Fitzpatrick about biometric tech use by individual agencies like the New York City Police Department, uh, Administration for Children's Services, and New York City Housing Authority and Department of Education. He said that while the uh, Housing Authority and Department of Education were not subject to the Identifying Information Law, which is from 2017, he wasn't aware of any others using a biometric identification system. And then uh, there's just a quote here from Jennifer Gutierrez, who is the chair of the council's technology committee. 
I was disappointed by the lack of preparation from the Office of Technology and Innovation today. We heard a lot about the importance of transparency from the agency, but what was presented felt very much like the opposite of that. It was mentioned at the very beginning of the article, but they didn't go into detail, which is why I think I forgot to copy and paste it here. At one point, they straight up accused him of lying because he keeps sitting there and he's like, I don't know, uh, nothing I'm aware of. We're not doing anything. And at one point, they're just like, we're pretty sure you're lying. Once again, these uh, these government agencies do not want to be transparent about what they're doing with our data. A Delaware judge ha- refuses to dismiss Facebook shareholder suit over user data privacy breaches. So they've rejected arguments that the complaint should be dismissed because the plaintiffs did not first demand that Facebook's board take legal action before filing litigation themselves. Basically, Meta tried to get this lawsuit dropped by arguing the plaintiff didn't take their issues up with Meta and they went to the board first. But the judge basically said, yeah, like you guys would have done anything anyways. So the lawsuit will move forward. Uh, I like. So the headline says, accused Calgary murderer to argue he has privacy rights over family members' DNA. In 2020, Leonard Cochran, who is currently 53, was charged in the cold case murder of Barry Buchart and Trevor Deakins, who were fatally shot in 1994. Cochran was arrested and charged 26 years after the killings when police were able to match the accused DNA to blood found at the crime scene. Cold case detective Ken Carrier did that by searching genealogy websites like Ancestry.com for partial matches such as family members, to the crime scene DNA. The detective then used genealogists to build a family tree using those family members and other information like social media, census records, obituaries, and newspaper archives. Ultimately, Cochran was identified as a suspect. Police then covertly obtained a sample of Cochran's DNA, which came back as a match to the blood left behind at the scene. Before Cochran's trial, which got underway two weeks ago, uh, Court of King's Bench Justice Keith Yamauchi dismissed a defense application to argue against the inclusion of genetic genealogical evidence on the basis that the accused chartered rights were violated. But midway through the trial, the Supreme Court released a decision changing the way judges can dismiss applications like Cochran's. Before the trial, the onus rested on the defense. Now the onus is on the crown, and in order for the application to be dismissed, it has to be found manifestly frivolous. On Monday, Yamachi ruled he will hold a voir dire... I don't know what that means, during which defense is permitted to cross-examine detective carrier as well as two investigative genealogists. So previously, the way that privacy, DNA privacy worked in Canada, if I'm understanding this correctly, is the defense had to prove the DNA evidence was not like properly obtained or, you know, for some reason should not be admitted. Midway through this trial, the Supreme Court has released a, a new like ruling that says actually it's the other way. It's the the prosecutor who has to prove why this is relevant and why it should be included. What that means is if the prosecution cannot make a good case for why this evidence needs to be included, there's a really good chance that this whole trial will probably be thrown out entirely because that's kind of what they're hinging all their evidence on is like, hey, we've got this DNA evidence and from there we can link everything else and you know probably pin this guy for murder. But without that evidence, the whole case will fall apart. It's weird because like you want you want us to have privacy rights, but you also want to catch the bad guys. And unfortunately, the privacy rights might let this guy get away with murder, literally, but it's interesting. All right, moving over to the EU. They have draft legislation that will ban AI for mass biometric surveillance and predictive policing. The EU has taken a step closer to enforcing new regulation of AI, uh, drafting new safeguards that would prohibit a wide range of dangerous use cases. Uh, these include things like mass facial recognition programs in public places and predictive policing algorithms that try to identify future offenders using personal data. The regulation also requires the creation of a public database of high-risk AI systems deployed by public and government authorities so that EU citizens can be informed about when and how they are being affected by this tech. The law in question is a new draft of the EU's AI Act, which was approved today by two key committees, the Internal Market Committee and the Civil Liberties Committee. These committees are comprised of MEPs, which is the members of the European Parliament, who have been charged with overseeing the legislation's development. Yeah, this is all good stuff, and let's see where this heads. 
Our next story is a real quick one. It says, Chat Control, the EU's CSEM scanner proposal. So this is a quick primer that I stumbled on this week. It's uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with Chat Control or you're looking for a, a good a good write-up on it that you can share with friends and family who may not be familiar with Chat Control. Um, this is what this is. And just a reminder for those joining us, Chat Control is a proposed EU, EU legislation that would basically require all messenger providers to do client-side scanning, uh, even if they're end-to-end encrypted, which is not good. Uh, it basically breaks encryption. It's a backdoor. And of course, it's all in the name of protecting the children and whatnot. So we're not fans of it around here. Most privacy people are not. And there's a big, huge debate over it in the EU right now. And this is a great primer to get you up to speed on why that is. Clearview, find again in France for failing to comply with privacy orders. Oh, gosh, Clearview. Um, it's really just an overdue penalty payment for failing to pay last year's 20 million euro fine. The penalty is now another 5.2 million euros. Whether Clearview will ever pay any of these fines remains an open question since the U.S.-based company has not been cooperating with EU regulators. Last time we covered this, don't, aren't they just like not responding to anything? They basically just pissed off out of Europe, and, or at least out of those specific countries, and just pretended like nothing happened. Our next story comes from Turkey, where a presidential candidate has quit race after an alleged deepfake. So the Turkish presidential candidate, I'm probably going to screw this up, I'm sorry, Muharrem Insay? withdrew from the race after an alleged sex tape circulated online. Insay claims that it is a deepfake using footage taken from an Israeli porn site. One of my readers noted that the article doesn't mention that this also comes very, very shortly after a recent poll that showed Insay was only getting 2% of the votes. It could be coincidence or it could be maybe like this is the final straw where this happened and he's just like, yeah, screw it. There's no way I'm going to win now. But I still think this is a really important story because it shows the kind of impact that this stuff can have, um, which for the record, people have been saying for years, we're hitting a point where, you know, there's going to be videos circulating online of here's my opponent saying, you know, death to puppies. How do we know? Is it real? Is it fake? Like it looks so convincing. And, you know, we're already living in a world where not to get too political, but a candidate can step up there or an existing politician can step up there and say something in plain blatant English and all of the supporters still go, well, he didn't mean it that way. So this is only just going to make politics even worse and more divided. So Vietnam to crack down on anonymous social media accounts. Social media users in Vietnam must soon verify their identities in what the government says is a bid to crack down on online scams. Unverified accounts on both local and foreign social media platforms such as Facebook must comply with the new regulations. It's unclear how the new measures expected by end of 2023 will be enforced. Both individuals and organizations must comply with the new rules. And again, this happens, we get normally at least one story like this every week for the most part, but there's always one country that's like, we're going to deal with this problem by verifying everyone's identities on the internet. And um, this presents brand new issues as well, because now you have to secure people's identification. Um, there's also privacy risk there as well, because now you have to give your ID up to companies like Facebook, who I'm sure are going to uh, handle that information very safely and privately uh, in typical Facebook fashion. But yeah, like this whole I concept of identifying everyone on the internet is just not good at all from a privacy perspective. And that's what I'm most concerned about. All right. With that, we'll jump into our free and open source news. We'll start off with something from Brave. They're calling this forgetful browsing. So starting with the desktop version 1.53 and Android version 1.54 and probably iOS eventually 
from what we've seen from Brave. Brave browsers will include a new feature called Forgetful Browsing, which allows users to always clear cookies and other storage when a site is closed. Forgetful Browsing can help you be automatically logged out of a site when it's closed, avoid rate limiting by a site, for example, you have X remaining articles to view, and generally prevent sites from re-identifying you across visits. This is very similar to the cookie auto-delete plugin that a lot of you may have used in the past or may still be using. So I was a little confused when I first read this because I'm like, Brave already has a feature where you close the browser and it clears everything out, but this is on a per-tab basis. So uh, again, if I have Reuters open in one tab and I hit my limit of articles and I want to read another article, I can close just that tab instead of the whole browser and then reopen the tab and now it's fresh, like I wasn't there today. You can enable this and they have all this on the the article. If you scroll down a little bit, you'll see some screenshots. You can enable this on either a per site basis. So like generally it's not enabled, but you can say, Hey, on this, I, I hate to keep harping on it, but you know, like Reuters enable it just on this site or alternately you can enable it globally and then whitelist specific sites and say, Hey, don't do it on this site. So, you know, if you like to stay signed into, for example, if you're using a PWA and you want to stay signed in on Mastodon as a PWA, then you can say like, Hey, don't, don't clear Mastodon when I close the browser and it won't. Now that I put it that way, that's really cool because <laughs> that could be a great use for it. Right. It's like a fine-tuned um, private browsing mode because that was my first question. I'm like, how's this different from just having a, browse, a private browsing window? But um, yeah, this is like a fine-tuned version of that where you can, you might not even need to use private mode anymore on your browser uh, if you didn't want to. Also, just so people know, uh, desktop version 1.53 is not open to the public yet, I don't believe. Um, like I'm on the most up-to-date version and I don't have that, but you can still enable it in your flags in like experimental, but, um, this is going to be in the desktop version coming soon. So probably in the next week or so I'd imagine. Up next, milestone for Nitro Key 3 achieved. Open PGP card, one-time passwords, and USB-C availability. So Nitro Key is like an alternative to YubiKeys. It's a hardware token. Uh, for those who are interested in a hardware key but want something open source, because YubiKeys are not open source, NitroKey 3 has now received this major update, uh, which is much more on par with other offerings. It's still not quite as powerful as a YubiKey um, in some aspects, but it's pretty darn close and it's open source, so definitely go check it out. It's overall some really cool stuff. Just a shameless self-promotion. I have all the footage for a uh, NitroKey review video that I hope I will get out later this month. All right, and our last FOSS story comes from Thunderbird. This is real quick. The headline says, Thunderbird is thriving, our 2022 financial report. So just kind of letting you guys know if you're a Thunderbird user or you're just interested in knowing how Thunderbird is doing financially, they have published their financial report from last year. You can go ahead and check it out. Uh, as the headline says, they seem to be doing pretty well. They do know at the very beginning, they're like, hey, once upon a time, we were hanging on by a thread, but now we seem to be doing pretty well. So good for them. And now the misfits. So the first one is Windows for Gamers rolls dice with your security. Atlas OS describes itself as a transparent and streamlined modification of Windows. The idea is that a default installation of Windows may not provide a satisfactory or optimal level of performance for people who play video games. In response, Atlas OS aims to maximize performance and result in higher frame rates while gaming. Apparently also it does some basic debloating, like doing certain things to Windows that make it maybe slightly more privacy respecting. Um, I'm not saying it is more privacy respecting, but apparently just people in the privacy community do this. Um, but among the things that it does, it strips out Defender, like Windows Defender, and uses a third-party antivirus instead. No, they, they advise you to. It doesn't even come with one. They just say, if you want antivirus, go get a third party. Which is silly. And then it also disables the hypervisor-based security, which isolates sensitive data like login credentials from the rest of the system. I see this all the time. Like, you know, I normally be like, hey, like, 
Windows isn't the most private thing. Uh, definitely, like, you can always use these scripts and all these third-party things to try to make it better, but honestly, like, just being on Windows in the first place, like, it's really hard to make it a private and secure experience because a lot of times when you make it more private, you have to sacrifice security. It's just a really bad platform to be on. Um, and this really speaks to that as well. So the next story, this is just a quick one. It comes from Ars Technica. It says, passkeys may not be for you, but they are safe and easy. Here's why. I'm just sharing. So I know we're talking about passkeys a lot lately, and I, I've already gotten a few people just like, God, oh, they're not all that great. Calm down. Like, okay, fine. We're going to wind down, I promise. But I just wanted to share this article because there's a lot of people that still have questions about what they are, how they work, uh, stuff like that. And I thought this was a really neat article to kind of discuss some of the more basics to for those who still have questions. So... If you're still curious about passkeys, whether you want to use them or not, if you're just like, I still don't understand how they work, here's an article from Mars Technica that might be worth checking out. Also, shameless plug, but Jonah, who's one of the team members at TechLore, released a video on YouTube that covers passkeys really well also, which was partially edited by yours truly. So if you want to see um, like a video format video that covers passkeys, it's a really good video. Like he did a great job of outlining it and it answered some of my questions as well because I was kind of uncertain about certain things with passkeys, but... Yeah, Jonah Aragon on YouTube. And here we go. Here is the final article for the week. How to delete your data from ChatGPT. So this is just sharing. We're going to get this out there. For those of you who tried to check out ChatGPT and have decided it's not for them, you can now delete your data. And this article shows you how to do it. So if you're curious how to do that, check it out down below. So the Q&A, again, there were no questions this week. Uh, if you join our Patreon for just $5 a month, um, you instantly have access to ask us questions and we already have posted the Q&A for next week So by the time you're watching this you can just join our patreon and leave a question and we will answer it next week as long as it's appropriate Check out our patreon again We don't really have a business model for surveillance support So if you want to support this podcast and keep it going and uh, allow us to grow uh, Check out some of the support methods down below just to summarize and start sending us out for the week Twitter added those encrypted DMS kind of a serious leak of private keys for Intel firmware and your phone comes pre installed with malware and a lot more i want to thank you for listening to the surveillance support the final thing i want to ask you to do is to share the podcast around and make sure you're subscribed and give us a rating if you're listening from a platform where that's an option we want privacy to reach as many people as possible we don't really have traditional marketing or anything so um, all of you sharing this stuff through word of mouth is massively important so thank you all for listening again and we'll see you next week